Please just lift your hands and just begin to thank the Lord for what he's done in your life. I know I say this a lot, but I never want to lose the spirit of thanksgiving. Is that when you're faithful to, to, to thank the Lord for what he's done in your life, you're forcing yourself to get your eyes off of what you don't have. And you're forcing yourself to see what he's already given you. You're forcing yourself to come into what he's already done and who he is and what he's doing in your life. So, Lord, we just give you thanks and we give you praise for everything. And I thank you like that, that song said that, that you bore our cross. Lord, I just ask that that would mean something to these people here in this place. That literally that was the instrument of death that you and I deserved for our sin. And you willingly took it upon yourself. And we thank you for that. We certainly didn't deserve it. singing that song I just saw I saw my own cross there with my name on it you know and then I saw Jesus just walk up to it and willingly pick it up and carry it see there's a cross that has your name on it and it's not a generic cross it's all the sin and the sickness and the shame and the unbelief and the doubt and the lust and the depravity and, and, the, and all the things and he walked up to the one with your name on it and he picked it up and he carried it all the way in. I don't ever want to lose the, the value of that in my heart. You know, I know some people have been saved for such a quote-unquote long period of time. They've lost, they've lost the meaning of the gospel. They, I don't know what they turned it into, but they forget how much it costs God to have a relationship with you. So many times, you know, we put the emphasis on us seeking God. You know, there's only one verse in the New Testament that talks about that. Every other verse implies he's been seeking us the entire time. <laughs> Go look it up. It's amazing that when you finally do start to try to turn around and seek Jesus... You don't have to look very hard or very far. He's just right there. So, Father, we need you this morning. I need you this morning. I'm not able to relay your word as you are without you. We're not able to hear your word as, as you are without you. So both the speaker and the hearer are dependent upon you, Holy Spirit. Because we are just absolutely nothing without you. But with you, we possess all things. So glorify yourself and your people. Open their minds. Heal their eyes. 
touch them again. Let their hearts turn and burn inside of them as they wake up to realize you've been with them the entire time. We thank you, Father, for these things. We love you. We appreciate you. We need you. And it's in your precious son's name that we ask these things and we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you so much, Shannon, Jesse, for y'all being here this morning. Shannon covered for Rebecca this morning. He did an awesome job. We miss Tyler and Rebecca, so y'all pray for them as they're suffering on the beach. <laughs> we will be joining them shortly. <laughs> We'll fill up that which is lacking in the body of Christ. I, I do want to thank all of y'all. You, you guys have been so good to us. And um, honestly, when you guys, um, for those of you who don't know, last year the church um, got together, the youth group specifically, and or the young adults. And uh, without us realizing it, I mean, us by Tahila and I, they raised some money for us to go on vacation because they found out we'd never been on one as a family. And that's you know, a big, big reason why we're able to take this this trip. And so, you know, I wish I could take all of y'all with me. I wish I had lots and lots of money and I'd just buy a huge hotel and we'd just go out there and just stay for a month and pray that in. Find the person who has the anointing for that and get them to lay hands on you every day. So we're, we're going to miss you guys, we are, and, um, but we've got a powerful speaker coming next week, and uh, I want you guys to really enjoy that and, 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 and be here for that. So uh, if you have children, you can send them back if you, if you want to, if you want to keep them with, your, with you this morning, that's totally fine too. Um, since we went a little bit long with our technical difficulties, I'm going to try to do my best, guys, um, to get y'all out. If you're new here and this is your first time, I'm one of those preachers. So what I mean by that is when I say I'm trying to close, that absolutely means nothing. <laughs> just ignore. If I say that, just ignore that. And if you're used to getting out at noon, you're free to leave. Just know that when you do, you're going to open the door, make a lot of noise. Everybody's going to turn around and look and see you leaving. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Yikes. Somebody's planning on leaving early this morning, and they're like, oh my gosh. He just did that to us. I'm so sorry. If you're planning on leaving early, it's my fault. It's my fault. Nobody turn around and look. So at the restaurant the other day, the waiter asked how I'd like my steak, and I said, I like it like winning an argument with my wife. And he said, rare it is. <laughs> yep. So there we go. Sorry. I had to give you a joke because I am going to be gone, and I haven't done one in a while, and Ariel's disappointed in me. All right. You guys okay? All right. Uh, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to jump around a little bit before then, but I have something that's been on my heart for quite a, t a bit of time. If you come to church here at all, you've heard me on this theme, and I feel like it's just another layer to the bricks of the building that God is trying to establish within the context. Hey, how are you? It's good to see you. Um, so 
bear with me because some of you guys have heard parts of what I'm saying before, but I want to reiterate it. I talked about it um, a little bit back two weeks ago, maybe before the conference on Resurrection Sunday. I alluded to some of these things. But I want you to understand some where my heart is with the Word of God. How many of you got? Well, how many of you guys read your Bible? Yeah, hopefully. Okay. Um, I won't ask if you've read it all the way because it's amazing how many people in church have never read the entire Bible. Uh, you should be convicted by that. That's not my job to convict you, but you should. Half the things that you don't have answered in your life might come from the portions you've never read. And then we shake our fist at God and ask, you know, wondering why, what's going on? And he's like, you know, I, I told you, you just, you just don't, you didn't read it. So I, when re, I say that to say this, when reading the word of the Lord, we need to understand the intention of the author. We don't need to break things down in such micronized versions that we lose the overall intention of God's design. If we lose the intention of what God established as why he gave us his word, then it, we've lost the power of the word itself. So understanding God's purpose, understanding what God caused us to walk in and what his intentions are for our life are absolutely important. If you read the Bible in a generic, toothless way and you miss God's reason for sending Jesus, it's not just to save you from your sins. If you miss the reason why he sent his son, then you're never going to fully understand him as God. Does that make sense? The reason that we have the word is because God wants us to know who he is. I want, I want you to think about that just for a second. Do you realize how many foreign, lowercase g, false gods that there are? And every one of them are trying to wave their arms in some sort of deliberance, uh, service, to get God, that God's attention. Almost as if he is, you know, uninvolved until he's interrupted. And then as he's interrupted, he has to decide whether or not the pursuit is worthy enough, the sacrifice is worthy enough to even consider showing up. But you know what? We treat God the same way. How many times in your life do you pray like you're trying to get God's attention? And he's not a false God. In fact, God, his whole heart, his whole reason for sending his son, his whole reason for this entire word that he's given us is so that we might know him. He wants you to know him. And that's the intention. You don't have to wave your arms in, in, in sacrifice to get God's attention. So I want to keep that focus this morning. So in, in, in Proverbs 25, you don't have to turn there. In Proverbs 25, 2, it says this. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it's the glory of kings to search it out. I wonder how many hidden things God has placed in your life that were the answer to the thing that you're going through. You just didn't stand like a king and work your way through it. Wow. 
See, we think that revelation just comes because it comes. No, I want to show you a principle this morning. We were talk- I feel like I need to expound on this. We were talking about this in men's meeting the other night, but God hides himself in his own revelation. Think about it. How many times did Jesus reveal himself to his people and they never saw who he really was? So people say, oh, I've had a revelation from the Lord. That's the invitation. You with me? See, it's the glory of kings to search out what God hides. And if you get lost in your Christianity and your world and your business and your finances and your family, you're going to miss the reason why God gave you the revelation in the first place. See, what most Christians do, they're consumers. They have a consumer-based relationship with Abba. In other words, Abba exists to meet whatever need they need at the time. They selfishly consume that need upon themselves, and they never understand why God gave the, the, the provision for the need in the first place. They just assume it was about them. They just assume the healing was about them. They just assume that the miracle was what, because of what they needed, because their eyes are on themselves. They never understood that, the, maybe, the, that maybe the reason the miracle came to them was so that it would lead them Closer to who God really is. But we stopped right there because we were filled, we were refreshed, we were healed, and then that's it. Wow, we did, you know, God did such a great thing last weekend. Why? But when you operate with God as a consumer-based mentality, you're never going to understand the intention of why God sent his son in the first place. Because it wasn't just for you. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 4, it says we were created for his pleasure. And for his glory we were made. It has absolutely very little to do with us. And it's more about him than we realize. But our prayers, our church going, our lifestyles, our families, it's all usually about us in a consumer-based mentality. And then when God does something, we miss the identity that he's releasing into that moment because we're using that to fill our own needs. And that's, that's what most Christians do best. And they've missed the intention. I need a touch from the Lord. Praise God, so do I. However, that touch, when it comes, is not just for my moment. It's to pull me out of my moment into something deeper that I'm not in. That's why he sent the touch. But so many people take the touch as God's endorsement on their current standings in life. That because God touched me, because God visits our church, or that church, or this church, we must be doing everything right. Wrong. God sent his son to the world not because we were doing everything right. He poured out his Holy Spirit upon the earth not because we were right, because we needed to come up higher. And it's our current version of Christianity that's keeping us from where God's ultimately wanting us to be. The touch God gave you last week, last month, last year, 10 years ago, the freedom, the addiction, all that kind of stuff, praise God. But that's no longer a part of who you are. Your testimony is yet to be written. And if you have more emphasis upon what God's done in the past instead of what he's about to do in the future, you are religious. 
Yeah, if this is your first time here, this is, yeah, so I'm sorry. See, the acts of Jesus are only given to show the extensions of his true identity. I want to read this. It says, and see, if you guys study your word, you know that John's gospel is specifically different than the other three. Because he saw something in Jesus that the rest maybe didn't see, or if they saw it, they chose not to write about it. And so John, he talks about handling the word of God which is a powerful statement that human beings actually got to touch the ancient of days without beginning and without end. To put your hands on the word of life. I mean, you know, these foreign deities, these, these false gods, I mean, there's no way that their followers would ever have the right to lay their hands on them. And yet God makes himself so uniquely vulnerable to us that we can touch him, we can feel him, and that even let John hear his own heartbeat. Why? Because he wants to be known. And the biggest danger of trying to know someone is having a false idea of who you think they are. Because then you have a relationship with the thing that you created about them instead of the real them that they actually that they are. Are you understanding me? So what God's done in your life, praise God for that. But that's not who he actually is. It's only just one segment of his unique and complex eternal nature. And if you make everything about God being what you've only experienced, you're only going to see what was, was instead of what is to come. What does the Bible say? It's he is who was, who is, and what? Who is to come. Most Christians have a relationship with who was. Very, very seldom do they have a relationship with God who is. And they hardly ever realize who the one who's coming. Are you with me? So John chapter 2 verse 11. You're in Mark 8. Stay there. I'm just setting some stage here. It says this is the first of his signs. John calls Jesus' miracles signs. Okay? They weren't miracles to John. They were signposts of God's unique nature being revealed to mankind through things that we could understand, hoping to spur us into something we couldn't. Yeah, that's a good one. You should write that down. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. What he's saying is, is that all these things that Jesus did were to show you who he is. Does this make sense? You need to learn to study your Bible differently. When you go read the miracles of Jesus, from here on out, ask yourself, why did he do that? Which part of this miracle is trying to reveal and open up who he is to his people? Because it's much, much deeper than just the act alone. With me? Some of you, I just changed your life right there just reading your Bible. Praise God. All right, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is, is one of the most 
It's one of the most, one of the top five chapters that has absolutely changed how I look at everything that Jesus does. You need to read this chapter. You need to study this chapter. One of the unique things about Mark chapter 8 is it's split specifically right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's already been with his disciples for about a year, year and a half. And so he's taught a lot of things. Some of you need to understand the wisdom of God when dealing with people. Some of you, when you get born again, you're so zealous to get everybody right and to teach them how to do all these types of things and blah, 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 blah. And you're, you're loading on them way more than they can carry. Do you realize that Jesus never asked anybody to carry their cross until halfway through his ministry? Why? Because the relationship has to be established before the call to death can be can be. Uh, um, Valued. You with me? You can get somebody saved. You don't sit there and start telling them about taking up their cross. They have no clue what that is. You need to love them and you need to make the gospel valuable enough that when it comes time to take up the cross, they'll love the gospel more than the death that it costs. Does it make sense to you? This is why discipleship is important because I can teach on these things and people say, well, you know, because when, when you get this many people in a room, which is, it's, it's, there's so many stages of Christian growth. And I have to principalize everything and blueprint it out. But your job is to disciple people into the detailed nitty gritty of what I'm saying and be able to, in wisdom, impart it to the people that God's given to you in life when they need it. Does this make sense? This is why, why attendance-based culture church doesn't work. Because you can't be discipled from a pulpit. It's not how it works. Discipleship's a lifestyle with people. It's not a message. It's a relationship. So Mark chapter 8, Jesus touches on something absolutely paramount to the believer. He splits it halfway in the middle of his ministry because he's trying to transition from away from one type of service to ministry to another. When Mark chapter 8 happens, Jesus now tells his disciples, I'm going to show you who I really am. Everything before this, they, had, they did not know nor understand nor did Jesus tell them that I'm going to die. So everything that happened, and, they're, they're, and what I want to say is this, everything in their relationship with Jesus up to this point was inaccurate about who he really was. You with me? Everything they thought God was and everything they thought God you know, was going to do, everything up to this point, they missed it. Yet if you told them you don't know who Jesus really is, they laugh in your face because of their experience. And when Christianity defines God by only their experience, they miss the essence of God himself. And there's so many of us have had Christian experience. Some of us a gutful of it. And we're defining God by that because we have seen him do things in our life. But then God turns a page with this walk that he has with them. And he says, now I want to show you who I really am. And it was a total downer and a disappointment to everything they thought. <laughs> I mean, you guys thought, you know, you had a promise from the Lord, and it just went the wrong way fast. 
total downer disappointment about how it's supposed to happen. You're like, dang, that, that's not how I thought that was going to be at all. Yeah, imagine what the disciples felt when they saw their king die before them naked on a cross. See, your ideas, my ideas, our ideas of what we think we know in Christianity, ministry, family, how it's all supposed to run, you're basing it upon something that happened yesterday. It's impossible for you and I to base things on what's about to come because we don't know. How can you be confident in what's coming? You can't. You can only be confident in who is coming. Does this make sense to you? So much of our Christianity is revolving around the what when it should be revolving around the who. What's God doing in my life? I don't care. Don't know. I promise, give it a minute and you'll figure it out. It'll, it'll show itself somehow, some way. You won't like it, but you'll learn to love him. Are you with me? So Mark chapter 8, verse 22, it says, They came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now let me say, let me say this. How many of you guys believe Jesus' life was completely random, and he was just responding to a string of events that were coming his way? Why do you think your life is completely random whenever you're just trying to respond to a string of events coming your way? <laughs> Well, they did that to me, and they should have never said that. Why don't you stop and go, thank you, Father, for letting them treat me like that, because you have a purpose and a plan for it. Well, God wouldn't send somebody to say something like that to me. Well, then why did Jesus send to that woman call her a dog? He's called me that before. It wasn't fun. Don't be a dog, Chad. Don't act like you're on the outside. I think if he came to the church of Jesus today, he'd say, you're acting like a dog. You're approaching me and praying to me and worshiping me like you're trying to get my attention. Don't act like you're on the outside. So he brought, he knows, he knows in his pre, uh, he's just so infinitely wise and powerful. He has access to Father. He knows what's about to happen. So he takes this opportunity to let this miracle he's about to perform to show us a prophetic symbol of what it's like to actually follow him and to have this transitory period between knowing what he does versus knowing who he is. This miracle is the most pivotal miracle, in my opinion, in the entire Gospels. The most pivotal. Because it's taking people from what they think God is, and he then begins to reveal him as he really is. And so he comes to Bethsaida, and these people bring to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. I want you to understand that the hand of God is always connected to the heart of who he is. So what God does in your life, in other words, is always connected to the heart of what he wants you to see him as he is. 
we're so satisfied with his hand and his touch and his deliverance and his freedom and his victory and his power. But many times it doesn't lead people to a deeper degree of knowing who Abba is. Religion's satisfied with knowing what God does. Sons are hungry for who God is. So verse 23, he took the blind man, this is so interesting, by the hand and led him out of the village. This man represents not only the disciples up to this point, but most church-based cultures that are going to come after them. He has a need, right? He knows God is the only one that can fulfill the need. And he's coming to the Lord for the need. With me? Let me ask you something. Anybody ever know a blind person? Okay. Have you ever been to their house? Everything is absolutely and perfectly in order. Not one thing is out of place. They have to be the most organized, disciplined people because if they have something out of order, they will trip and fall. They will not be able to find what they need. They are very familiar with way they have life operating at that moment. Sounds like Christianity. We like structure. We like order. We like everything right where we want it. We want this way in our family and that way in our family and this way in our church and that way in our church. And if we go to a new church and we don't like that, we're never going back because it's outside of our order. Right? We're blind. But you got to understand that these people represent these disciples. And so yet they saw Jesus. These disciples saw Jesus. They saw the miracles of Jesus. They'd done miracles and signs and wonders. And yet they think they can see. But Jesus is about to show them that they're really blind to who he really is. This man represents them. And there's so many times in our life we have been saved. And we can think, we can sing that song, I once was blind but now I see. What we're talking about is what God did for us. But what we're not talking about is knowing who he really is. In that, we're still blind. Yet we think we see. Because we've had this, what, past experience we're basing everything on instead of the future of where we're headed. And then we'll create little camps and defend our little experiences based upon, you know, what we've experienced versus not somebody else has it. And when somebody else has experienced something different than us, then we, oh, nope, we're going to close that door off. And that's you and that's us. And you're, you're that church and we're this church because we're all basing all our churches on our past experiences. And revival is just nothing more than trying to get God to give us a new experience that we benefit from. Right, because if revival comes to our church, then we benefit because more people come and then more money comes. Yeah. Sickening. You with me? So what does he do? The first thing that Jesus does to this blind man, what's the first thing you do? Let him out of town. You don't do that to a blind man. You don't lead him away from what's comfortable. That makes him now what? Vulnerable, dependent. How many like being vulnerable and dependent? Ooh, then you're not going to like the God of your future. If you don't like being vulnerable and dependent, you're okay with the God of the past, but you're not okay with the God of your future, which means you're religious. 
in my own way, my own situations, I'm religious. And God has to continually and constantly pull me out of what happened yesterday and say, I am with you and in front of you. The past no longer belongs to you, whether it's good or whether it was neutral or whether it was bad. I own the past. You only own me here and now and where I'm taking you. But most of us live in our past, and we think if we can live in a good past, a moral past, a revival past, that it's okay to live in that kind of past. However, that past is done, and it will never come back. He leads him out of town. See, when God begins to heal your vision of who he is, he begins to make you uncomfortable with everything around you. Some people who are members of our church came from other structured programs of religion, and when they got here, they were extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> you with me? Yeah. He takes them outside of the village. Listen, when God makes you uncomfortable, he's trying to get you to see. If he's trying to get you to see, ergo, that means you are. We call it walking in faith. God calls it trying to restore our vision. Because faith isn't blind. There's nothing about blind faith in the Bible. Faith in the Bible is tangible, which means you own it before you actually receive it. You're walking in the reality of it before you see the tangibility of it. And you're so convinced that no darkness, no devil, no lie, no man, no anything can ever tell you that it's not real. Oh, is this helping you? So he takes this man out and he, he, he spits on his eyes. That's gross. I can just see it, you know. God's really telling me that you guys need to come forward. I'm going to spit in your face, and you're going to be healed. I think the altars would look exactly like they look right now. I went to that church, and that dude actually spit in my face. COVID alert. See, there's something that comes out of the mouth of God that heals our eyes. What comes out of his mouth heals our vision. Though it may not be what you want, it may not be comfortable, it's usually an awkward experience or something that happens in that scenario, it's going to bring something that's going to be able to bring you to sight. But keep in mind, this man is an icon of a parable, if you will, an allegory to these disciples and their current condition. And he spits on his eyes and he asks him. Now, Jesus knows. You can't tell me he doesn't know what this man's seeing and what he doesn't. He's not just, he knows what's going on. The miracle is a sign God's intentionally doing this this way. How do you know that, Chad? Because I know God is powerful enough that the first time he touches somebody, they can get completely healed. 
So then why didn't he get completely healed on the first touch? Because this miracle is a sign. It's something God's trying to speak to us and to his disciples. He touches him knowing that he's not completely fully healed. But compared to what he was, he can now sing the song, I once was blind, but now I see. And Jesus is looking at him and going, you're still blind. You're not going to convince him of that. People who are stuck in religion, it's impossible to, con to convince them they can't see. Because they're basing everything in their life on what happened, not who's in front of them. Now, let me ask you this. It's, he says, he asked him, do you see anything? I love the way the Tree of Life version says, it says, do you behold anything? See, like, check this. I mean, Jesus has got him face to face, mouth to mouth, and he says, what are you beholding? See, the miracle of receiving the sight wasn't about him and his vision being restored. It was about him having a proper understanding of who was in front of him the entire time. What are you beholding? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Are you beholding your sin and its power? Are you beholding someone else's sin and its power over you? Are you beholding your past religious awesome experiences? Or are you beholding Jesus as he is? You know why Christianity doesn't like living in the moment and in the future? Because it doesn't give you any glory to do so. You can talk about what God did yesterday, and you can put you as the center of the story, but you cannot talk about what God's doing now and what he's going to do in the future because you don't know what's usually happening in your life, and you're so frazzed out and spazzed out about it, you're trying to get your bearings, and it doesn't make you look like a hero. If you ask me what God's doing in my life right now, I'll tell you the same thing that you did. I don't know. I have no idea. It's rough some days, I know that. <laughs> but I also know enough not to look at what he's not doing or what he is doing. I know enough to look at him. What does that look like? Some days it looks like just pushing everything out of my brain except him. Well, how does that make you feel? Sometimes nothing, sometimes everything, sometimes convicted. Do you behold anything? And he says, he looked up and he says, I see people, but they look like trees that are walking. You know, when we improperly see others, we're going to improperly see God. This is why bitterness is so dangerous because bitterness makes you bitter at people and it's only a matter of time before you treat God the same way. So I don't care who hurt you. I only care who can heal you. Because if you empower who hurt you, you're going to disempower the God who can heal you. 
Should they have done that? Should they have said that? Well, no. Absolutely not. But for some reason, God let it happen. And you can either brand yourself as a victim or a king who searches out the hidden mysteries of God. You understand? So many of our so many of our modern, especially soaking culture, church type movement puts so much emphasis on just us and Jesus, my relationship with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus, my relationship with Jesus. So much so that they miss the vital, the most vital part of what God placed into this earth, which is family. I'm not talking about blood. I'm talking about community. What does Jesus say? When you come to me to offer your sacrifice and you realize that your brother has an ought against you, what are you supposed to go do? So in other words, Jesus is saying this. You can't come worship me until you get things right on your horizontal level. So much for the my personal relationship with Jesus, because when you show up with that personal relationship with Jesus and you got stuff against your brother and your sister and your mother and your friends, he's going to say, look, I'm not going to allow you to come to me in purity until you go make it right with them. That's why so many people's personal relationship with Jesus is terrible, because they refuse to go make it right on a horizontal level. See, Jesus is Vertical level with God, his vertical relationship with God meant absolutely nothing if it didn't have a horizontal reality. He had a perfect relationship with the Father before we ever got here. Did it mean anything to you? No. You weren't even born. God wants a family. He doesn't save individuals. He saves his family. And if you and I don't want our brothers and sisters to have exactly what we have in the gospel, then we're selfish and we're not of the DNA of our Father in that moment. If your Christianity becomes about you, it's no longer a true version of Christianity. Because Jesus' entire life was for other people. He said, for their sake, I sanctify myself. My own holiness is not for me. It's for them. Most of our holiness is for us so that we can look in the mirror and not look away. <laughs> so we can feel better about ourselves. Feel like we're actually making it. Actually, God's with us, you know, because I'm doing right and I'm not in sin this week. <laughs> oh, that makes, you love, that makes God love you more. Really, show me the verse. With me? See, I see people as trees walking. But listen, what, this is what people do. They get touched by Jesus, and then the first thing that happens is they feel qualified to go start a ministry. <laughs> oh, I've been touched by Jesus. Imagine this guy running off, like, oh, I'm healed. And he goes back to the city, and he's like, you'll never believe how good God is, Mr. Tree Man. <laughs> he touched me. And then he's going to start a ministry on the first touch. And that's what we do. So they get saved or delivered or whatever, and they spend a few years in church, and they think they're qualified to 
to know the mysteries of the gospel. It takes a lot of time to actually become the thing that you know. And those are circumstances that most people run from. You know how you get to become, you know how you get to love people more? You know how you get to the point where you love people more? You have them, you allow them to hurt you more. But you know what we're trying to do is create a sterile environment where we don't ever get hurt again. No, no, Jesus says love your enemies. You can't do that unless you actually have an enemy. And guess what? When you actually have an enemy, they want to hurt you. And then we get all wounded because we were hurt. And Jesus is like, that was your opportunity to see me. But all you saw was your experiences and what you thought you wanted from me. And you missed me in the middle of your moment. That was your opportunity to love. Well, we want God to send us people that are easy to love. Well, Jesus says the heathen can do that. Right? Y'all are, you okay? Okay. I see people as trees walking. See, compared to what he saw before, I mean, it's night and day. Most of us are in the, right here in the middle. We've been touched by God. We see something. We, we, we see, like, what God's done for us. We see, but we don't see him clearly. See, Christianity sometimes requires two touches. I'm not talking about two, two different separate experiences at the altar. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about two radical encounters where one pulls you out from darkness into light and the other one pulls you in from light into his, his glorious face. Where you know the purpose of life. You know why you're alive. You know what you're, you know you're called to die. So how do you know that? Because I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. He goes after this to a horrible place and says, who do people say that I am? In other words, Jesus, this miracle is tied directly with his concern about how you see him. Why would he ask people, what, who do you say? Well, why would he care? Because he cares. Because if you view him wrong, your relationship's going to be wrong. If your relationship is wrong, then you fall into the category of Matthew 7, where you come before him with all these experiences, prophesying, signs, wonders, miracles. And he says, I don't know who you are. Our modern church age is obsessed obsessed with power and signs and wonders and baptisms and all that type of stuff. But do you realize that that doesn't bring you to heaven? Prophesying accurately, hearing, seeing things, seeing demons cast out and all these types of working miracles and signs, that does not grant you the right to properly know him. In fact, all it is is you're just a consumer-based Christian only wanting to know what God can do for and through you without ever seeing him as he is. So Jesus laid his hands upon his eyes again, verse 25. And the guy opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Imagine the difference. He's like, whoa, I thought the first one was good. You look so much different, Jesus, than what I thought. That's revelation. See, God hides himself in revelation. Was he already revealed to this man? Yes. But was he fully revealed to this man? Because of who? Because of this man, not because of Jesus. Jesus was always, he always looked the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's us who have the false idea and the false understanding of him. 
It's not him. It's us. It's me. It's you. We have to keep pushing into who he is and let his face be clarified to us. Allowing him to touch us again. Some people say, oh, well, you know, God touched me at this area of my life. He may touch that area of your life again. And then, you, and then when that happens, you know, you're just like, well, I thought I was healed the first time. Oh, I feel so much better. I don't care how long you've done this, 60 years, 20 years, prophesied accurately. Your experience level in this church to me doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Whether you've been this or that, or that means absolutely nothing to me because it doesn't change the principle of where you're going next. And you can't see that just as like I can't see mine. We're vulnerable before him, walking. With me? So the miracle immediately, it, it, the sign, he, this, this sign happens, and he, then he immediately goes to the why of the purpose of this sign. He, t- he heals this guy, and then he grabs his disciples and says, come with me. And they walk to Caesarea Philippi. Right? See, seeing God's important because in 1 John 3, 2, it says, we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we will be. We can't see what's coming. It does not yet appear what we'll be. But... We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we'll finally see him as he is. I think some people are going to go, oh, my gosh, I was so wrong. Like, I just, I was so wrong. And so verse 27, he goes with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asks his disciples, this just happened, this just happened. The guy sees who Jesus really is after the second touch. He's been walk- these people have now been walking with Jesus for a long time. They have an idea who Jesus is. But he asks, he says, who do people say that I am? What's their definition of me? How do they define me? Because their definition determines the relationship. Your definition of God determines the relationship. If you see yourself as an orphan and you see God as, as, as some sort of distant father, you're constantly going to try to uh, uh, prove to him your attention to get that attention from him. You're going to be operating in a beggar mentality, and your position of how you see God determines your relationship with him. If you see, if you see yourself as a victim, you're going to see only God as somebody who can heal you and nothing more. With me? And he said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some others the prophets. And he asked him, well, who do you say that I am? He goes from a generic reality to a personal reality. Who am I to you? So many people today would say, oh, you're my healer, you're my deliverer, you're my, my this, my that. And God speaks to Peter's heart. It doesn't say it here in Mark, but it says it in the the account in Matthew. God speaks to Peter's heart and pushes something inside of him, and he says, he's my son, the Christ, the anointed from God. See, it takes God, it takes the Father to properly reveal the Son. And it has to be in our heart. There's something here that's much deeper of knowing who he is than we could ever unpack here. 
There are things that I know and I've experienced in my past, but there's also things I know that I've experienced because of my past about who he is in the future. There's certain realities I know about him. I cannot physically explain them to you. It's impossible. It's so personal and so deep that I can't lay hands on you and put the ability to be able to not look at circumstances when things come but only see him. I can't impart that to you. You have to develop it on your own. There is no laying on hands for certain things. There's the walking out of the life with Jesus. And he says, who do you say to him? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew's gospel adds this. Simon answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You're not going to get an, uh, an understanding of who I am through your own mind, through your own experiences, through your own encounters. You're only going to get the full knowledge of who I am from heaven. And from this time forward, Jesus began to teach them that he must go to the cross and die. He says, I want to show you who I really am. I'm one who suffers for people who aren't worthy of the suffering. I'm one who forgives those who've been, who, are, who need to be forgiven who aren't worthy of forgiveness. This is why I know most people don't understand who God is in church because they're still hung up on what's been done to them by somebody else. And all they care about is God healing them. And he says, no, I'm the kind of God that forgives the kind of people you hold in contempt. I'm the kind of God that will suffer for his enemies and you're still trying to prove them wrong. I'm the kind of God that can love whenever all you want to do is hate and blame. See, when we see him as he really is, we begin to operate just like him. And then we realize, wait a minute, I'm now no longer held by the power of somebody else's mistakes. Like, your, your stupidity doesn't hold me anymore. Like, because you hurt me, I now have power to be able to heal you. Well, I don't want him healed. That's because you're not like Jesus. You'll just go back to all your experiences and justify yourself. I don't want to do that. See that word revealed, it says there in Matthew 16, 17, it says, flesh and blood is Latin revealed it for me. That word means to pull back a cover or a veil. Flesh and blood did not pull back the cover and the veil off of your eyes to properly see who I am. In fact, flesh and blood will constantly put a veil over your eyes. The pain, the disappointment, the rejection, the offense, betrayal. Just constantly shrouds your vision, shrouds your vision, shrouds your vision. And then God becomes nothing more than a medicine bottle that you pull out when you need him to be able to make yourself feel better about, what's, about who's hurt you. 
And then when you're done with it, you put them back. Some people only seek God when their family's sick. And they distance themselves from community and church. And, and then guess what? You know what God always allows? He allows some enemy, some disappointment to come in. You know why? Because that's the only way he can get your attention. It's not what he wants to do. But if he can only use sin and difficulty and sickness to get your attention, to put your eyes back on him, guess what he's going to use? Because this temporal life means nothing compared to where you're going. And if he has to make it harder here for you to get there, he will do it. It's not his desire. It's not what he wants. But we are often forcing him to do that. There are certain times in my kids' lives the only way I can get their attention is applying the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge. See, I want you to understand that the opening of the eyes of Adam in the beginning wasn't a miracle. When God opened Adam's eyes the first time and he, and he saw God's face drawing away from his mouth after receiving the breath of God, the first thing Adam saw was, was God himself. That wasn't a miracle. The miracle was being able to see God as he was without sin, without the shroud of failure and past experiences and this and that and and that's what Jesus did when he, took, when, he, when he took your sin, he took your shame, he took all those things. Why? So that you could feel better about yourself? No, so you could finally see without having to see through unforgiveness, without having to see through bitterness, without having to see through rejection and betrayal and abandonment, without having to see through rights and wrongs and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and who's right and who's, without having to see through all of that, that you can actually see God purely in love. So, man, so much of our relationship with Jesus is filled with garbage that we're trying to get God to fix. His name is what? Emmanuel. Is he? How come we don't realize he is when we're in the thick of our stuff? Because we still live a consumer-based Christianity that sees God as nothing but a deliverer and nothing more. Praise God he delivered you. But that was yesterday. With me? I want, I'm going to just real quick. So again, that means nothing. But John 11, real quick. Jesus, you know the story. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Jesus waits three more days. How many want a relationship with Jesus like that? I preach a whole message on John 11. The Bible says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, dot, 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 so he waited. Why is God waiting? No, why is it? Because he loves you. See, it's a greater thing for them to receive resurrection than healing. Sometimes God wants to give you resurrection when you're hell-bent on healing. You with me? But see, there's an interesting thing that happens. Martha runs out of the city, and, and, and she goes and meets Jesus, and she starts saying, if you'd have been here, if you'd have been here, my problems would have been solved. Because, see, you, you're, you're here to fix my problems, Jesus. You're here to fix my marriage. You're here to fix my finances. You're here to fix my children. You're here to fix my, my nation, my city. 
You're here to bring healing. He's like, no, that's not why I'm here. And he looks at her and says, your brother will rise from the dead. Why? Because it's a sign. Your brother will rise from the dead. Well, she gets all religious on him. She says, well, I know in the resurrection, in the coming days, he'll, 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 he'll rise. And he's like, I am the resurrection. In other words, what he's saying here, guys, is this. Resurrection is not something I do. It's who I am. See, if you know God as resurrection, you never fear death, even if you're going through it. She didn't know God as resurrection. She only knew a God who could resurrect. See, if you've been healed in your life and you know God as healer, then you only know what God can do. But if you know him as the healer, he is the healing, then the next time you get sick, you're not moved. You're not waiting on an act. You have the presence. You have the man himself. But if you reduce God to an action, then you're constantly begging for him to do something whenever you should have the identity of him being with you as he is. So when you're hurt and betrayed, you don't need God to heal you from that anymore. You know that he is healing and he's with you, so therefore you possess all things right now. Why do I be let it bother me? Keep on moving. Does it make sense? It's awesome because then you don't have to have ministry meetings with the pastor. It's so weird. I get in the office sometimes and I'm like, guys, this isn't the Bible. You should, you know, you should know this. Like, I don't mind, but Jesus is with you. But they and he and like, no, Jesus is with you. Like Jesus is with you. Like Jesus is with you. Like the God, the one that all the pagans seek to get their attention. He's riveted on you. Your problem is you're not riveted on him. And when that happens, everything just goes, ha, ah, and you don't need me anymore. It's amazing. See, he is the resurrection. You with me? All right. In John 6, 26, he says, you're seeking me not because of the miracle, or not, not because, uh, he said, you're only seeking me because you saw the miracles and because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're only seeking me because of what I could do for you, how I could fill your immediate situation, your immediate attention, your immediate this, your immediate that. Why my kids need this, and my kids need that, and my wife needs this, and my husband needs that, and my finances need this, and I need some peace. And you're asking, fill me, God, fill me, God, fill me, God. And he says, no, I am the bread which comes from heaven. See, if you have constantly the bread, you don't have to ask for the bread. <laughs> Does that make sense? But so many Christians are like, oh God, I need to be healed. I need to be filled. Fill me, God. And he's like, fill, fill, fill you? Fill, what? How, how am I supposed to fill you when I am the bread and I'm with you? If you see me as I am, you don't have to ask for what you already possess. Stop praying like a consumer. Pray like a son. John 11, Jesus opens his prayer when he's about to bring Lazarus forth. And you know what he says? It's so awesome. He says, I thank you, Father, that you always hear me. Man. How come you can't pray like that? 
Because some of you love your doubt and unbelief more than you love your faith. Because you don't feel worthy for God to listen to you. So you're going to try to perform and do something great and catch his attention, and then he's going to answer your prayer. No, he won't answer your prayer. Because if he answers your prayer based upon what you did, he doesn't get the glory. That's why some of your prayers aren't being answered. Because they're, they're coming out of the wrong womb. They're being delivered through unbelief and fear and doubt, and they're not being delivered through faith and access and sonship and presence. You start praying like that, and then you can say, I thank you, Father, that you always hear me. And all the religious people around you can go, man, that guy's really arrogant. You're a worm. You're nothing. You can't pray to God like that. Show me in my Bible in the New Testament where Jesus says I'm a worm. It ain't in there. You with me? When the road to Emmaus happened, Jesus was walking with these guys the entire time. They're all concerned about what they don't have and who isn't with them. Who was with them the entire time? The one they were concerned who wasn't with them. Isn't that what Jesus says? Don't tempt the Lord your God. Do you know what that story is in reference to in Deuteronomy 8? When the children of Israel stopped and said, is God with us or not? After seeing all those things, they're still, is God with me or not? God, are you really with me? I mean, come on, guys. You've had such experiences with the Lord. That should at least get you to the point where you're not looking back enough to where you can stop and say, it doesn't matter. He showed me he was with me back here, which means he's still with me here. <laughs> so now my present reality is the same as my past reality, which means I can move into my future reality. That's how you tempt God is when you start praying like, well, God, are you really with me or not? And we pray like that through so many different veins and ways. We pray through unbelief. So again, I say that the intention of God is why he gave the word. If we miss the intention, then we're going to misapply the word. And we're going to think this is just a bunch of cute stories that we're going to try to draw some abstract theory from. It is mind-blowing to me that God always has my attention. And I always have his. You with me? Does this help you? You can stand. Unfortunately, this message is not one I can lay hands on you for something. You have to be healed. You have to be touched a second time. And many times that happens when God takes you out of your village, out of your city, out of your, your situation. He does that through discomfort. So when God starts making things uncomfortable for you, whether it's physically, financially, geographically, in family, or whatever it might be, that's, that's him saying, let me take you away from this just for a second, just me and you. Because I got something I want to show you. And you know what it's going to be? His face. Because he says, you're not seeing right. You're seeing your blindness. You're seeing your need. You're seeing what you need me to do. You're not seeing who's with you. So 
So walking in faith is walking in tangibility of owning and possessing Christ in your now, in the middle of all of it. So you can stop and say, man, he is with me. He is faithful. You understand what I'm saying? So I just want you to lift your hands real quick, and we're going to pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son for us to know who you are. It's always been the, the chief desire of your heart to be known of your people. And so, Lord, right now we just repent. We change our mindset on how we look at certain things and that we've walked with you up to this point, maybe even a little bit blind, thinking that you're one thing, but then you're, you're showing yourself as something completely different. That you are the God who exists in the midst of death as life. You are the God who exists in the midst of the cross as resurrection. So it doesn't matter what we see in our circumstances. What matters is who's hanging there with us. That your identity doesn't change just because our circumstances do. So we ask for you to forgive us and heal our eyes and let our minds be touched with your presence and your reality. Father, I pray that you, pray, you forgive people in here for operating under a spirit of unbelief. Like they're having to try to catch your attention. I ask that you touch them a second time. And I ask that you would, by the Holy Spirit, make it known to their hearts that you're still with them. And that you are resurrection in the midst of their, their circumstance, in the midst of their death and their trials. That God, they just begin to look at you differently. They see the stories differently in the Bible. That you came to show yourself fully. And we can have as much of you as we desire. There is no limit to the one who wants to know God. So make these your children so hungry for you that they learn how in wisdom to practically apply these circumstances in your reality and not try to bring you into ours, that we take us into you. Be real to us as we are real to you. We thank you, Father. We bless you, God. We thank you for your reality over these people's lives. We declare it and we decree it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are more than welcome to stay. There's food back here. We'll have it ready in a few minutes. If you need to go, you're dismissed. We love all you guys, and I will see you all when we get back. Please pray for us.